Well, please turn me in the Bibles to Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. Happy New Year to you all, by the way. Acts 21, 15 through 25. This book is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it could really be called the Acts of God, the Holy Spirit. Why? Because as we have seen, the book of Acts is all about the Spirit of God working through the people of God to reach the world for the glory of God. And so the church began with a few people in an upper room in Jerusalem at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And then it grew from there to reach thousands in Jerusalem. And then it ignited and spread from there, reaching out to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. The message? Jesus can forgive you of all your sin and rescue your desperately lost soul from eternal wrath by grace through faith in Christ alone. What a message. What an incredible message message. Acts began by looking primarily at Peter's ministry, and then since chapter 13, Acts has been focusing on the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul is now nearing the end of his third missionary journey, and he's making his way to Jerusalem to take a financial gift to the needy Christians in that city. And then after that, he intends to go to Rome. The journey to Jerusalem has been long, and we have seen that. It's been long. But in today's passage, Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. Let's go ahead and look at that. Verse 15. Acts 21, verse 15. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. We're going to stop here for now. And here in today's passage, we find five facts to take note of. And the first is this, that Paul finally made his way up into Jerusalem. Finally. Now remember, Paul has been in Caesarea for a few days, staying with the godly man, Philip. During that time, the prophet Agabus warned Paul that if he went to Jerusalem, that he would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles, which would cause Paul a great deal of pain. And when the Christians in Caesarea begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem and into the pain and into the persecution, Paul knew that God wanted him to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul still, even then, is determined to go. For pleasing God is more important than avoiding pain. Well, it's now time for Paul to make his way to Jerusalem by foot. And so they made their preparations for their final leg of the journey. Note that even though Paul has been told repeatedly, that he would be beaten and arrested in Jerusalem. Look, Paul's traveling companions continued to travel with him. How good is that? That, that, That's important. See, now that they're convinced that going to Jerusalem is indeed the will of God, they too are willing to walk into the face of persecution for the glory of God. And also, they aren't willing to leave Paul alone. See, I love that. And while we all must be willing to stand alone for the glory of God at times, it's good to know that there are others who are willing to stand with us to help shoulder the burden. And Paul certainly felt that from his companions, his faithful companions. And so they packed up and they began their journey up to Jerusalem. Now on a map, Jerusalem was to the southeast of Caesarea, but they went up to Jerusalem because it's elevation. The journey from Caesarea to Jerusalem was about 65 miles Verse 16 tells us that some disciples from Caesarea went with them along with Mason of Cyprus, who was an early disciple. And that's very interesting. This is the only time that Mason is mentioned, and this is only conjecture. 
but it very well could have been that Mason was saved when Paul went through Cyprus on his first missionary journey about 10 years before. Mason probably lived about halfway between Caesarea and Jerusalem, and since the journey would have been too long to complete in one day, Mason wants to bless Paul and his companions by letting them lodge with him, which certainly was a blessing for all of them, including Mason. So they made their journey through the coastal plains, into the rolling hills, and then up into the mountains, going up to that great city of Jerusalem. What was Paul thinking along the way? I mean, the anticipation of what was coming had to have been intense. He knows, see, he knows he's walking into trouble. Paul knows that he's walking into pain. He knows that he's walking into fierce opposition. He knows he's walking into chains and much worse, but he keeps on walking. (laughs) Who does that? Only those whose chief aim in life is to glorify God, right? Only those who understand that pleasing God truly is the greatest thing that you can do, even if it means pain, even if it means prison. And so Paul walks on. See, God's people, they don't run from danger, no. They unashamedly do the will of God in the face of danger. A conviction like that comes a hard way, and many don't have it. See, conviction like this comes to people who have deep spiritual roots. It comes to people who have a firm and solid foundation on the truth of God. It comes to people who have agonized in prayer, who have immersed themselves in God's Word, who have been refined by suffering, who have battled fiercely against sin and against temptation, and who are still battling aggressively against that every single day. That's where that kind of conviction comes. And it certainly doesn't come to those who pray little, to those who rarely pick up the Word of God, to those who show up for worship and true Christian fellowship only when it's convenient, and who make God just a part of their life instead of their all in all. No, they're the ones who run away when the real spiritual battle comes their way. But not Paul. And I guess the question is, what about you? Conviction. Conviction. And so he walks on up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the most important city in the world. Jerusalem, which means possession of peace, is called by various names in Scripture, Salem, Ariel, Jebus, the city of God, the holy city, the city of David, and Zion. The first biblical reference to Jerusalem is found in Genesis 14, which is a story of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek, king of Salem, which was early Jerusalem. The actual name Jerusalem first occurs in Joshua 10.5. Later on in 2 Samuel, David marched on Jerusalem and he captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David, from the Jebusites, which again was early Jerusalem. At that time, Jerusalem then became the capital of Israel. Later, Solomon built the temple of the one true God in Jerusalem. And so it was here where the worship of God was centralized for the people of God. It's also in this city where much of prophecy is still going to take place. And even though we don't worship God in the temple, now that Christ has come, the fact that there is so much history in this city, and the fact that the church began in this city, and the fact that much of prophecy is still centered around this city makes it still a very prominent and important city. It certainly was prominent and important in Paul's day. Verse 17 continues with the narrative. And so second, we find that Paul and his companions were received gladly, verse 17. Let's look at that. And when we had come to Jerusalem, uh, uh, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went into 
in with us to, to James and all the elders were present. When we had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Now, as we know, Paul had previously spent a great amount of time in the city of Jerusalem. Remember that? Remember before his conversion, Paul was here in this city studying under the renowned teacher Gamaliel. And and, and Paul himself was a very strict Jewish Pharisee. As strict as a strict Jewish Pharisee, Paul hated Christians. And so Paul not only was a leader in the martyrdom of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, but Paul also led a great persecution against Christians in Jerusalem, where he made havoc against the church, entering into every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, Acts 8.3. So Paul knew this city well. As we know, Paul got saved on the road to Damascus and he became a Christian, praise the Lord. And his first visit back to Jerusalem after his conversion wasn't very peaceful, understandably so. I mean, they were, the Christians in that city were scared of Paul at that point. They didn't know. Well, Paul left, but then he returned to Jerusalem again in chapter 15 for the Jerusalem Council, where he and the leaders of the church had to deal with an issue regarding Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and how they all fit together within the context of the church. And look, five years later, it's still an issue. But as Paul and his companions entered into Jerusalem and found the Christians there in that city, they were received gladly, kindly, warmly, hospitably, and heartily the way it should be. I'm sure it was a great time to renew old friendships and bonds and also to make new ones in Christ. Paul had certainly known some of these Christians in Jerusalem since the very beginning, some of whom he probably persecuted before he was saved. And now, praise the Lord, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, united together for the glory of God. So, it was a great day when Paul and his companions entered into Jerusalem. And third, Paul reported what God had done among the Gentiles to them. So look, they came into Jerusalem and they greeted the brethren. And then it was the next day that they met with the leadership of the Jerusalem church. So first was the greeting and probably some good food and fellowship. I mean, obviously, right? And then the business meeting came the next day. Paul with Luke and his other companions, and there was indeed a number of them with Paul on one side. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, along with the elders of that church on the other side. And so Paul shares with them the amazing things that God had done among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, over this past missionary journey and since the last time that he had been there in Jerusalem. What do you think Paul shared? What about the, <laughs> the many stories that Paul had? What about the, the Ephesian riot that came about because of the impact that the gospel had on the community? What about that? Or how about the power of the gospel to change lives forever, as had happened in Athens and in Corinth? Or how about the apostles escaping his would-be assassins? Or poor Eutychus's swan dive out the window during Paul's sermon in Troas and then his miraculous resuscitation. How about that? So many incredible stories. And then, of course, all the souls who have been saved for the glory of God. So many souls that had gone from death to life, from hopeless despair to hope, peace, and joy, from Hell to heaven, from doom to glory, from Satan to the Lord God Almighty. Oh yeah, Paul had much to report and it was all so very good. 
And even though there was suffering and trials and troubles along the way, so many trials and troubles, it was all worth it for the souls and for the good of God's eternal kingdom. But that's not all that would have happened at this meeting. And even though Luke doesn't mention it here, we know for sure that Paul would have also presented that love offering, the financial gift that had been taken among the Gentile churches in Macedonia for these poor brethren who were still suffering in Jerusalem. Remember? We've talked about this before. There was a famine that hit Jerusalem about 10 years earlier, and its effects were still being felt even now. And so Paul sought to bless the church in Jerusalem with a financial gift from the mostly Gentile churches to the West in Asia, Macedonia, and in Achaia. Churches from the cities of Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and so on. Poor churches themselves, yes, but who still gave generously for the even poorer church in Jerusalem. Paul had been planning this love gift for at least two years. And he made it a a considerable sacrifice in coming to Jerusalem to deliver this financial gift. It wasn't easy. And while they not only had to be careful about carrying all that money, they also needed to make sure that they were fully accountable for all of that money and that none of that money went missing. I mean, their integrity was on the line as well. So delivering this money wasn't easy. And Paul is here at a considerable price with his own life on the line. So they bring in the money and they glorified the Lord. This was a relief to Paul because it wasn't clear how this gift would be received. In Romans 15, it indicates that Paul was concerned that both he and the financial gift would be rejected by the church in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? I mean, rejecting a financial gift? Can you imagine? (laughs) Why? Why would they reject it? Because There were some major issues going on in the church regarding Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There were some very serious issues going on. And while those issues seem to have been dealt with at the Jerusalem Council that we looked at in Acts chapter 15, those issues didn't go away. But when the elders in Jerusalem glorified God by Paul's report and by Paul's gift, Paul was certainly relieved. And so he was likely caught off guard when the elders informed him that there was indeed a major problem. Uh Uh-oh. Verses 20 through 22. Let's go ahead and look at this. Verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought to not circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Uh Uh-oh. That's a big uh uh-oh right there. Now please understand, the church is still very young at this time, under 25 years old. And the church is in transition. I mean, you had people coming from a Jewish background to faith in Christ, and you had people from a Gentile background coming to faith in Christ, and that can create some serious questions and some serious problems. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 15? These guys called Judaizers came in and taught that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is called heresy. Essentially, these guys came into the early church and they were attempting to force Gentile Christians to live under the regulations of the Mosaic law, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. One of the specific elements of the law that the Judaizers stressed was the 
practice of circumcision where they said that you couldn't truly be saved unless you first became circumcised. Now, circumcision was indeed a command in Genesis 17, and it was an outward sign of a man's participation in Israel's covenant with God. But as we know, since Christ came and died on the cross, Christ completed the law, he fulfilled the law, and we today are no longer under the law. See, the reality had come in Christ. And when Christ came, the pictures and the symbols in the Old Testament had no more place or purpose. And so the law, the priests, the whole Levitical system, circumcision, the old, all of it is fulfilled in Christ. And now it's all about Jesus Christ being saved by faith alone based on his work on our behalf, not on our work. And then once we're saved, being compelled by love, intense love, to honor and obey him with our fading lives. And so works come after salvation, flowing out of the lives of the lovers of God, but works have nothing whatsoever to do with salvation itself. And that's very important to understand. See, being circumcised won't get you into heaven. And it doesn't play any part in getting you into heaven. And eating kosher won't get you into heaven. And it doesn't play any part in getting you into heaven. And being good won't get you in either. Nothing you do can save you. No. Jesus alone saves by grace through faith in Him alone. And the false teachers needed to be corrected. And they were. And that's what they dealt with at the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. There it was made clear that even the Gentiles were being saved by faith in Christ alone. And the Spirit confirmed their salvation very clearly. They were saved by grace through faith, not by any work that they did. And look, they didn't have to go through Judaism to come to Christ. They didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. They didn't have to do anything but simply put their trust in Christ alone to save them. And He did. He saved them. So, Why would they change the gospel message and add works to it when adding works to the gospel message destroys the gospel message? Right? I mean, it's a great point, isn't it? You've got to take a stand, and they did. The true salvation comes by faith alone and Christ alone. That's it. Because of what Christ did on the cross for all who believe. That's it. And note this. They were saved again without going through the Judaistic hoop. They were saved without being circumcised first. They were saved without doing anything but placing their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And again, that was cleared up in Acts chapter 15. But what about the Jews who came to Christ and who still, so they're Christians. They came out of a Jewish background and they're Christians and they still struggled with moving on from their Judaism into Christianity. I mean, it's not easy for them to let go of all those things. There's a transition. This group was mentioned in chapter 15, verse 5. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it's, necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, this isn't the group of Judaizers who taught that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. But instead, this was a group of Christians who were former Pharisees who didn't argue that circumcision was necessary for salvation. But instead, they argued that circumcision and obedience to the law was required after salvation. So as opposed to a heresy like works salvation, which is impossible... These guys were simply misunderstanding how the Christian life should be lived out. They love the Lord. They're saved. But they still have much to learn. They're, they're the weaker brethren, see? They're, they're immature in their faith. What's the call when it comes to them? To look out for them. To show them love. 
Don't, to, to not cause them to stumble. To consider them above yourself. To cater to their weakness until they can grow and become stronger in their faith in the Lord. That's the call. So back in chapter 21, look what happened. The immediate problem is brought to Paul, verse 20, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they're all zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. This is, again, a very serious issue. Great news that thousands of Jews have believed and have become saved. They're now Christians. But look, they're zealous for the law. So while they were apparently genuine believers, they were still clinging, like in Acts chapter 15, to many of their practices that they had learned since childhood, Jewish practices, unable to immediately forsake everything that they had been taught. Okay. Did you hear that? Okay. So long as they understand that those things have no merit as far as salvation is concerned. Okay. Okay. As long as they understand that those things are just customs to keep and not binding biblical commands anymore. Okay. As long as they weren't counting on those things for their salvation, but they're just doing them as a custom and as a tradition. Okay. They need to mature. They need to grow. They need to move ahead. But, but okay. But it goes deeper than that. Look, these Jewish Christians had been informed. In other words, someone got a hold of these people and they said that Paul, they lied about Paul. Paul teaches all the Jewish Christians who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses and that they should never circumcise their children and they should never follow Mosaic ceremony, any Old Testament ceremony. And that's a lie. That is a lie that is misinformation. That's deceptive. It's a deceptive way to try to get people to turn against Paul. That's their goal to get people to turn against Paul. Most believe that it was the heretical false teachers, the Judaizers, who were spreading these lies, and they are clearly trying to get people to turn against their number one enemy of the Judaizers, the Apostle Paul, the godly man, the Apostle Paul. Because if they can undermine Paul, then they can more easily spread their wicked lies. And so they went around, they got a hold of all these Jewish Christians, and they said, you know what Paul does? He's coming to town. You know what Paul does? He's the guy that tells all all the Jews to forsake Moses and to not circumcise their children and, and to not obey the ceremonies. And so they were undermining Paul by saying that he doesn't want anything to do with Judaism, which Paul never said. Oh yeah. Paul had much to say about the law of God, right? Much. Read the book of Galatians. (laughs) How it's good. The law of God is good, how it teaches us, how through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and so on. And he also taught that by works of the law that no flesh will be justified, never has been and never will be. Right? So the law is good, but following the law as a way to get to heaven won't save anyone, which is the absolute truth. Doing, being, you know, being good, doing, following the rules won't get you into heaven. Only Jesus can get you into heaven by grace through faith in him alone. Paul made that clear. Paul also taught about circumcision. He taught that circumcision has no merit whatsoever as a Christian, but that circumcision is nothing. In other words, get circumcised or don't, as long as you know that it has nothing to do with your salvation, see? Paul even had Timothy circumcised, remember that? So that Timothy could more fully minister to the Jews because circumcision is nothing. So do it or don't, again, as long as you know that it's nothing but a custom now. 
Paul also never taught that you couldn't keep the Jewish customs as long as you know that they are now just customs and not a means of salvation. So do it or not, as long as you understand that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the Judaizers were liars and the people were believing their lies. And now the people will hear that Paul has come to Jerusalem. And this could be a major problem. A powder keg kind of problem. And although the elders of the Jerusalem church don't believe the charges against Paul, I don't think they believed it. They expressed their concern and they feel they need to do something to avert the impending crisis that's coming. So forth, the church leaders urged Paul to pay a vow and to purify himself. Verses 23 through 25. Verse 23. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the gent, uh, we'll, we'll get to verse 25 in a second. This is quite interesting. It's quite, see, it was a common practice for Jewish men to take a vow, specifically a Nazarite vow. The word Nazarite literally means a consecrated one which speaks of holiness and devotion. And so a Nazarite totally consecrated himself to God and he took a vow of self-imposed separation and discipline for the purpose of special devotion to the Lord. See, every once in a while, a Jewish person would come to an intensified point of commitment, of conviction, and of deep devotion to God, and he would set aside a period of time and take this vow, and the outward sign of this vow was that he would let his hair grow, and the hair served as a reminder to him and everyone else that he was set apart for God for a time. Number 6, 1 through 21 talks about this, and it tells us that for those who took this vow, that you committed yourself to not drinking wine or liquor, to not cutting your hair during the vow, and to not touching anything that was ceremonially unclean, such as a dead body, for that period of time. When the vow was over, the person would go into the temple in Jerusalem, sacrifices would be offered to God, the candidate's hair was cut, and it was put on the altar and burned, and then the priest did the final task of completing the sacrificial process, which ended the vow. Now, for a poor person, the Nazarite vow could be very costly. Because in this vow, two lambs were to be offered and they were expensive. In addition to that, a ram, then loaves and cakes with meal and drink offerings were to be given. Again, very costly. And because of that, it became customary for wealthy Jews to pay the expense of the poor, which was considered a great act of piety. And this is what the elders asked Paul to do for these four men. To pay the expenses of these four men who probably like many of the Christians in the church at Jerusalem at this time, were very poor. And so out of Paul's own pocket, he would pick up the expense, not just for one, but for all four who had made this vow, even though Paul himself had very little money, I'm sure, as a tent maker. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem also wanted Paul to purify himself. Now to do that, Paul was asked to go through the ritual of purification that lasted seven days. Why? Because Paul had spent many years ministering to the pagans. And the Jews considered a man who had been out in the pagan world to be defiled by that. And so when he or she came back into the land, they would go through a rite of purification so that they would be ceremonially clean. And look, they asked Paul to go through this ritual of purification that lasted seven days so the Jews would see that he's not opposed to the law. This would hopefully then stop all the lies and rumors going on around about him. And as we'll find out next week in verse 26... Paul did what they asked of him. 
Think about that. He paid for the four guys to complete their Nazarite vows, and he also was purified with them. Now, it's very interesting. Some say that Paul himself underwent a Nazarite vow, but the text doesn't say that. I don't think that he did, but he did go through that purification process. That is clear. So here's a question. Was Paul doing that wrong? It's a big issue. Was Paul wrong? Did Paul compromise by doing this? And some say that he did. G. Campbell Morgan said that Paul made the greatest mistake of his ministry on this occasion. Others agree with him. Others say that Paul doing this was a cowardly move, that that he wimped out, that Paul was a complete and total hypocrite by doing this. But I don't agree with them. I don't see that at all. Come on. After everything that we have seen about Paul, do you really think that Paul would have compromised here and given in to the crowd? I mean, really? Do you? I say never. What's Paul doing here? He's being consistent with his policy of becoming all things to all men in order to win them to the Lord without compromising the truth of God, of course, which he didn't do. Here, Paul willingly became as one under the law for those who are under the law. See, these rituals were mere customs now that Christ had come. And if going through them could bring unity to the church and enhance the gospel, then go for it. Paul knew that these things had no, absolutely no power to atone. And here we see an example of the apostles' willingness to concede where no biblical principle was at stake. John Stott talks of Paul's conciliatory spirit. And then he says that the solution to which they came was not a compromise in the sense of sacrificing a doctrinal or moral principle, but a concession in the area of practice. And I agree with him. Paul did this when he had Timothy circumcised, and he did it here in order to glorify God and to strengthen the church. Picture this hypothetical situation. I'm out sharing Christ with the lost in a foreign country, and I come across a village where everyone has a shaved head. They won't let you into the village without a shaved head. So what then should I do? I mean, I love my hair. I have a beautiful head of hair. What do I do? The answer is obvious, right? I shave my head so that I can better minister to those souls. That's essentially, I believe, what was going on here. See, this had nothing to do with salvation. This was in no way a compromise of God and His truth. And this would allow Paul to better minister to the people and for the Christians in Jerusalem to be united under the gospel. And that's the only reason why Paul did what he did. Paul would never compromise the truth, but he will do what he can to remove all the stumbling blocks for the church so that they can better minister together for the glory of God. So instead of Paul doing the wrong thing here, I believe he did the right thing here. And it wasn't easy, and it cost him a great deal of money, but God's glory and the church's well-being was worth it to Paul. So 5th, verse 25 tells us that the church leaders reaffirmed the decision by the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 regarding the believing Gentiles. Verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Why? Because those were the most offensive things to the Jews. Now remember, 
at the Jerusalem council, they decided that no Gentile needed to be circumcised. No Gentile needed to do the ceremonies in order to be saved. No Gentile needed to keep the law in order to be saved. That's very, very good. But they needed to do these other things in order to maintain open communication with the Jews. Because if the Gentiles ate the wrong foods and drank blood, and did, which they used to do in their pagan ceremonies, and, and did all the things that they used to do connected with their pagan religion, then they would certainly make the Jews stumble. So they were in effect saying, you don't have to become Jews in order to be saved, but just avoid doing these things that are going to offend the Jews in your midst. And that's a simple principle. Isn't it? It's a biblical good principle, right? And so Paul did what he did to help the struggling Christians who came out of a Jewish background. And the Gentile Christians who were, were, were called to abstain from these things to help the struggling Christians who came out of a Jewish background. And we do well to consider one another with the decisions that we make. See? Be careful. Be careful. Consider one another. See? Act in love when you do what you do. And be willing to give up some neutral things for the glory of God and for the well-being of those around you. They will know we are Christians by our what? By our love. By our love. That's why Paul did what he did here in Acts chapter 21. Love. May love be what marks us clearly today. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word of truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would act in love, that uh, we would consider one another... And Lord, that we would be known by our love. Also by our conviction of truth. Speaking the truth in love for your glory. Bless us. Increase our faith. Unite us together. And may we go out with you on our hearts and minds and mouths. In Jesus' name, amen.